If you keep bashing Ansible belong enough, eventually Red Hat will offer you a job. This is episode 13 of Network Automation Hangout, discussion about network automation with the community. I'm your host, Dmitry Figel, and this is what happened to me recently. Will you tell us more about it? Yeah, we need to hear more about that, <laughs> for sure. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I don't think so. Right okay, right well, we will stay tuned for your new job update. Roman, would you like to introduce yourself? Well, I'm Roman. I've been doing this podcast like six times already. I hope so. But I, I skipped a few past episodes, so forgive me. Now I'm ready to roll. Very nice. Welcome back, Roman. Thanks. And I'm Carl, and I'm glad Roman's back to take some of the heat from Dimitri, you know? Yes. Hmm. You just don't want all attention focused on you, Carl, right? So I don't put you on the spot. I don't make jokes only about you. So there is, you know, some equal opportunity to be made fun of, I guess, on the show, right? Yeah, or, or even just asked things. I'm not I'm not ready. I'm never prepared. I'm always caught off guard. Yeah, you would think I would figure it out by now, but you always catch me off guard. All right. So let's go as usual around our virtual round table and see what you guys have been up to. Roman, let's start with you. Oh, I've been up to many things since since I skipped quite a lot of episodes before. I think primarily I've been busy with creating the content for container lab demos. That's what I did recently at the Netherlands Network Operators Group event, which is NLNOC. So now if you if you're interested to know more about Container Lab, you can just type it in the YouTube and you will get it on the third place, I guess. Apart from that, I've been doing quite a lot of Container Lab development at the same time. And I've been also busy with the new open source project, which happens to be, again, about the networking labs, but now it's under the Google's flags. It's called KNE. Maybe we will discuss it like next time when I'm prepared. It's a nice project, which actually, in a few words, it's a container lab, but on the Kubernetes steroids. So it's it allows you to run multi-vendor labs if you happen to have a Kubernetes cluster. So that means you, that you can have your topologies really, really big, as big as, as the IT cluster that you manage with Kubernetes. And that also very familiar to container lab users because the topology is practically defined the same way and, and whatnot. And we also worked with Carl, hey Carl, on the Scrapligo features. So Scrapligo is now part of KNE as well, which is, I think, very awesome. Yeah, great, great work on that. Both Carl and Roman have been looking at some of the GitHub stuff, GitHub discussions, and some of the progress being done there. It's quite amazing. Roman says he's not prepared to talk about stuff and then eloquently talks about stuff. I feel inadequate <laughs> now. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the Scrapply Go and the KNE stuff, that was that was taking up a little bit of time, but I guess not the last uh, couple weeks. Last couple weeks, been working on boxing a little bit, but I haven't had a ton of time. Um, hmm. So I've been doing that and then some work stuff, but uh, that's that's about it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about boxing? Uh, I, I saw some logos on Twitter made by Roman, and they were like, hmm, what is Roman this said project? no logo, no success. So he's he's got my back with logos now. <laughs> yeah, I think it makes sense. Like, you know, you can build a great stuff, but if it's not, if people don't know about it, and I would say that logo is part of it, then, like, no one will use it, no one will give you any feedback, and it's kind of like, oh, I wasted so much effort and no one is using it. 
So I know what that feels like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So so boxing is kind of uh, well, it's kind of two things. So it kind of started. I I was a or have been a VRNet Lab user for quite a while before Container Lab and all that stuff, and I thought it was a pretty useful way to kind of package and you know spin up stuff locally for development and, and whatever um, and make it reasonably shareable because you know you can package your image and export it and share it with people and you know yada 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 but I always so I built a pretty beastly hackintosh desktop and I have a MacBook you know laptop and everything and docker support on a Mac is kind of terrible because it's got this like um, VM shim in the middle and there's weird stuff and and you don't have kVM and you know, so there's, there's some kind of quirks, and really the KVM thing is kind of the the rub. Um, so if you don't have KVM, you can't really boot any of these devices. They just like sit and spin forever. So I basically kind of took a lot of the the stuff that existed in VRNet Lab and I built it in a private Python repo that never kind of saw the light of day because it's kind of terrible code to be honest. Uh, but I basically did all this, the similar stuff, except instead of the container layer, I just ripped that out, and it was basically just managing Chemu VMs natively, and with like a little Python CLI, um, so I could do like you know box and start instance or start group or whatever, and spin that stuff up, and it was just kind of governed by like a simple YAML config where I could say you know these are the things I want added on the management port, or you could flip it to bridge mode, and you know blah blah blah. So this was really useful for me. Like personally for testing Scrapply and and whatever else because I got a boatload of resources on my desktop and so I could just spin up a bunch of stuff natively and like life is good. So I went through a couple iterations of that (laughs) and because (laughs) this was like I've probably iterated on this more than like anything else I've ever worked on because I just kept like hating it and ripping it apart and starting from scratch. So (laughs) so that's been a, a journey. And then as soon as you know, we started talking to Roman about Container Lab and stuff, and I was like, well, this is super slick. I was like, well, that's pretty cool. And then Roman has his fork of VRNet Lab to add some kind of specific things for Container Lab. And I added, I don't even remember what I added, Pan Palo Alto VM and like a Nexus 9K or something, whatever. And um, I was like, well, you know, maybe we could just do this and go. And obviously Roman was like, yeah, let's just do it and go. So I've been working on basically converting the stuff that I wrote in Python into Go to do now both things, both the native ChemUVM, like just for, for me, local, or well, I mean, obviously for anybody that wants it, but that's useful for me because I can run stuff on Darwin um, with HVF acceleration or with Haxum, which is another Intel project that's, that's open source and out there. For, that's like a, another version of KVM, basically. And then also now the Go version is also dealing with packaging things up in Docker, um, or I guess whatever container images instances um, and dealing with all of that. So it's mostly done-ish, but there's like a lot of cleanup that needs to be done and there's no docs whatsoever and there's no testing whatsoever. So you know how I feel about those things. So I'm going to obviously try to get those kind of baked in at some point, but so that's what I've been working on. Yeah, so, yeah. Let me let me interrupt you here, Carl. <laughs> so I wanted to to provide some more information about why I think this is really important and the timing is perfect. The reason is that when we started to work on the KE project, it, it kind of became obvious that when you will approach the future labs or future deployments of networking gear, you will eventually hit the wall when you have your VM and you need to run it 
on a with a container orchestrator. So how would you do that? So if you have your VMX, IXRs, whatever you have, and you need to run it in the Kubernetes space or any other container orchestration system, you will eventually need to containerize it somehow. You can play with kubevirt or some other th stuff, but there was a project which Carl mentioned that was uh, VR NetLab by Christian Larson and part of the DT group, I guess. They created this like set of scripts and a launcher for the VMs to be packaged, to be able to be packaged into container image. And what it allows you to do is that it allows you to take your QCAL from VMX or VMDK from FortiGate or whatever and nicely package it in a, in a container image. Now with container image and the launcher script that's part of it, you can now run your virtual machine in the container setting. setting. And that's what basically the hype is about. So you still have your virtual machine. You still download it from your usual sources. It's just that there is one intermediate step that will take this virtual machine and package it into container image, and you will be able to run it as a container. Now, there is, of course, a catch because there, it's not a proper container. Well, it is, but inside you still have a camu or any uh, VM manager that starts the VM. So there's like an indirection layer that you introduce, but it doesn't really hurt much as, as far as the, yeah, as far as the footprint goes. So now when you see these projects popping up like ContainerLab and Kany, you feel that there is inevitably a time where we will work with containers mostly and VMs will be either packaged into containers or vendors will transition to containerized network operating systems. So it's like, I see it's like one or, one or two options. So now when you go to the usual, medium, or large enterprise, you start to see that the OpenStack and uh, VM orchestrators, they are swapping with Kubernetes-based or container orchestration-based systems. So you might have your new job, and then your CI will consist of Kubernetes cluster, and IT guys will task you with, hey, do your test on the network infrastructure, but here is the Kubernetes-based system that you need to use. And that is when the being able to run your VMs in a container code or in a container setting comes really handy. So that is why projects like VRNet Lab were quite a success when I when I used it in Container Lab. And I see that in KNE it's also something that will be used. But now with Boxen we will have, I think, a better red right? will it be better than VRNet Lab? I hope so. No comment. <laughs> it, it it might work. Let's let's start yeah. and set the so, bar there. Okay. Guys, just hold on for a second. Imagine I am five years old and I barely understand about any of what you just told, right? So let's try to make sure everyone is on the same page here. So, you know, I've seen a lot of the VMs being published by different vendors, right? By Cisco, by Juniper, by F5, Palo Alto, whatever of their, let's say, network operating system, right? And you can take that VM and you can spin it up, I don't know, in VMware ESXi environment in like vSphere. You can spin it up in Workstation. For some, you can do it in VirtualBox. So on this uh, major hypervisors, right? And then run that virtual nodes. Well, that's great, but some vendors even went as far as instead of providing that or together with that virtual image, QCOW or whatever the format is, they also publish a container. So is that correct, Roman? And 
Could you also tell us a little bit more on that front? I know you have been involved in some of the work to make that happen. Well, I think the only vendor that has two different, two, the same network operating systems packaged in two versions, like VM and container, is actually Arista. So they have CUS for containerized version of EOS and VEOS for the virtual machine packaging. The rest, they either go fully containerized from scratch, from day one, or they have still VM-based packaging only. So maybe you guys know of, of others, vendors who have both containers and VMs. I know only of one. Well, I was curious about what you did at your vendor. And if you could tell us, we actually were waiting for you to discuss this. IPv0 responsibility didn't want to take it on him. So uh, could you tell us a little bit yeah. more on that? Yeah, so one of the things that we at Nokia did when we launched our network operating systems for data centers, which is called SR Linux, yeah, what we did is that we started from containerized packaging from day one. So we didn't have a VM for SR Linux. We made it containerized day one, right? But this container image was... It was not closed, it was still shared with customers, but you, you you couldn't download it as a user, right? So that is why that is why you needed to talk to somebody from Nokia, to, to a salesperson or to a technical manager, or whatever, and ask for this container image to be handed out to you. And uh, what we kind of jointly worked on is to be able to share this image with everyone, because now we have container lab that allows you to spin the container image in a topology of your choice, and you can spin it up in Kubernetes or whatever. So now when the setting was right, uh, we decided to open this container to everybody. And in contrast to some other vendors who also share containerized operating systems, we wanted it to make really public and open. Thus, we uploaded it to GitHub Container Registry. So you do not need to register with Nokia.com site or have some licensing agreements signed or whatever. You just do Docker pull and the address of the image and your image is on your machine. So it's as easy as it gets. And of course, it, it was not easy to convince everybody on the board that this is the way forward. But I personally think that this kind of openness in networking sphere is something that we waited very long for. And that is why I'm so happy that we made it really uh, to, to production. So now everybody can enjoy SR Linux. And that's great. Yeah, Roman, I agree. You and the team made a lot of effort to make it happen. And kudos to that. I hope uh, a lot of other vendors will follow with publishing their container images in a way where there are no obstacles to get them up and running. Okay, so there are vendors who publish their network operating system as VM. There are some which publish as containers now or, or a mix of both. Great. Well, then we have this project called Container Lab, right, Roman, which we talked about before. In case of VMs, we had a number of tools which were allowing to run those VM images in some kind of topology, right? So GNS3, even G, you could use um, Cisco CML. You can even not use anything, right? And actually build networking uh, stuff yourself. And probably there were many more other projects that were um, working in this space. And then recently we have this project called Container Lab, which is 
doing kind of similar thing, but only for containers and allows you to specify details of your topology in YAML file, kind of similar to like Docker Compose. Would it be correct assessment, Roman? Yeah, yeah, you summarized it really well. And the only thing is that when you say container lab only works with containers, that's absolutely true. But then it, it makes a nice segue to the VRNet lab, right? The project that yep. allows you to package VMs into containers so that container lab can use them. Yeah. But the rest is absolutely correct, yeah. Okay, so so container lab works with with containers, but there is this project VRNet Lab, which allows you to package your VM into container. And now Carl and you, um, or or just Carl, uh, I'm actually not sure about the details, working on alternative project to to that called Boxen. So Carl, uh, why don't you tell me, for example, why would I want to use Boxen instead of VRNet Lab? Ooh, good question. <laughs> so I think the the, probably the most relevant reason uh, in kind of context of Container Lab is that we'll be fully go everywhere, which will be kind of nice just to kind of be consistent. You know, I'm biased. I think it's relatively simple. And, uh, you know, I've used VRNet Lab for a long time and there's some kind of rough edges and whatever. So I'm just trying to kind of make it a very simple CLI and off it goes and, and does what it needs to do to package the container. Uh, images, but also if you want to run stuff locally, uh, if you just want to spin up a you know CSR, or a wh whatever BSRX or something, um, you'll be able to do that as well without that extra step. So like if you just need one device for for testing and and you're just local and you don't have Docker for whatever reason, like you can just do that, and you can do it natively on Darwin because we'll support HVF and hacks. Well, I don't do anything. All I do is pass a flag to to Chemio and it does magic, but so yeah, so those, I guess those are probably the, the high points. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that it's running in Go and I guess it's it's packaged a little bit better as a single binary due to that and it will work on Mac, correct? Yep, yeah, and like you'll still need to package instances, uh, you'll still need to build container images for use in Container Lab somewhere with KVM and, you know, like they're still caveats but but locally you can run stuff on darwin not every device or, or whatever i'm sure is going to support hvf or, or hacks but so far like xrv runs with hvf or hacks vos does csr does vsrx does and then and nexus 9k doesn't want to boot with hvf but it'll boot without it it just takes a while so like you know you can mm -hmm. run stuff natively if you're if you feel if you feel like it but yeah, the as, in terms of like in relation to Container Lab, yeah, single binary. So it'll be, um, you know, you just download the binary and, and put it on your path, and you can automatically package stuff, which is cool. And then in in the container, like in VRNet Lab, it copies the actual VRNet Lab Python into the container, and so we'll just be putting the Go binary into the container instead, and then that manages the. Um, the life cycle or whatever, like that, because the first time we boot the container, we do the install to kind of get through like power on auto provisioning or, you know, zero touch disable stuff for like Arista, you know, whatever those types of things are. And then subsequently it just boots kind of as per normal and has some flags that you can pass, like container lab will let you set username and password and stuff like that. So we have those flags exposed. 
So container lab can pass that uh, command to Docker or whatever your container D or whatever you're running containers in. Um, and then that gets ultimately passed into Boxin, which will go off and do its thing. Okay. So to wrap up this topic, to move on to something else, Roman, so far, I think there is a clear picture of what each project does, but the Google key and stuff for me is still a mystery. Could you clarify what problem that solves compared to, let's say, Container Lab? Well, I think that the easy split between the two projects would be it's either you run the lab on your single virtual machine or a single bare metal server, and that would be a perfect spot for Container Lab, or you rather need to have a bigger topology that runs on the Kubernetes cluster if you happen to have one. And uh, if you want to like have scaled topologies, that's not something that Container Lab was designed to do for you. Container Lab is really for, uh, I wouldn't say small topologies, but like small to medium-sized topologies. Depends on the on the server that you run it on, but it it doesn't really work with. You you could you could not scale horizontally with Container Lab. So if you have four VMs, you cannot spread the load between all of them. Whereas in KNE, there is a Kubernetes that would manage all those nodes and you can create a topology and your nodes would be spread across all the nodes that are under Kubernetes control. And that is why you will be able to scale horizontally without the need to scale vertically. So that is just one simple distinction between the two. But these two projects are, they have more similarities and, and more uh, different differences between them. It's just like we, we probably would might invite uh, the owner of Kany project in one of our podcasts so we can have you know all the detailed answers from him directly i think that would be really interesting and educational okay so a rough assessment and you know from 10000 feet would be that Kany is distributed container lab based on kubernetes in a way right yeah very coarsely detailed yeah okay and so just one last question on this. Let's say why Kini exists. Is the intention to run like production network in this or run big enough lab network to simulate production network? Yeah, the latter. So it's, it's not a tool to, of course, deploying networking gear with Kubernetes for production. It's more that you have now the tools to create a simulation for your production network as big as you have it, and you can accurately have a digital twin of your network with with a Kubernetes-based KNE. That would be my assessment of their goal. Okay, got it. Uh, folks, do you have anything to add on on these topics that we discussed? Yeah. Hey, Eric. Thanks for joining. Hey. Yeah, man. It's good to hear you guys. I'm so excited to hear your voice, Dimitri, and Kyle. Do we like live 50 miles away from each other, but we're hanging out digitally, right? Um, and, uh, you know, so sorry. Hey, Roman. So I think you kind of answer my question. Uh, oh, and th thanks for doing this, by the way. I, I, I appreciate this opportunity. Um, I'm pretty new to Docker and Kubernetes, but I, I did spend like the last, I don't know, month and a half trying to, uh, get out because somebody left within our team. So I'm kind of managing the Kubernetes cluster and trying to get like really deep into it. And I think I kind of get a hang of it in production and all that. But, and you kind of answered my question. What the question I had was, how does like, uh, so you were mentioning the bare metal and in, in the, in a single host because 
Docker actually has its own like name re name resolution. They kind of talk to the uh, the single host loopback, and that's why they know everybody. So in the Docker Compose single unit, that kind of works. Um, but in a Kubernetes cluster, do you envision um, any kind of container containerized networking gear to be in like kind of Kubernetes ingress, so that it could come in and we could kind of manage that ingress. Uh, low balancer and in the CLI that we're familiar with. Um, I don't know if this is like a too noob of a question. If you need me to ramp up on something else before you can answer that, feel free to let me know. Yeah, I it's think... all Roman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's a yeah, one. I'm on the spot. I didn't quite quite catch what was the question. If it's about the ingress that a certain networking operating system could pose as, then yeah, I think. So, yeah, yeah, sorry, go on. So let me. Yeah, so let me clarify. So I think um so I so our Kubernetes cluster is actually a bunch of like uh machine learning hosts as well as like uh like web servers, right? So like we would do an ingress and that would be like an Nginx ingress has low balancer built in where we could redirect to a service and then the service actually points back to the container themselves, whether that is like a uh whatever set it was, right? Deployment sets or uh you know like replica yep, sets yep. or whatever so so our our entry point to the outside world uh and to that low balancing world will be our nginx like ingress and that is distributed within the kubernetes cluster itself so like is there any way that i could just make that ingress point uh like i don't know uh vias or uh whatever os like v uh what is arista's uh eos v v c c o s uh, or something like that, so that I could come in and I'd be like, hey, you know, I'm just doing the network configuration and I have all the features built in within that network, always similar to what we have in the production, like physical network. Oh, I see. Well, I have I have no idea if you can reuse VOs for that for that purpose. I I don't think I that they they envision that to be used as a, as an ingress in Kubernetes clusters. That is why you have more suited ingresses like nginx, f5s, or whatever. Oh, does it does F five have an ingress? Um, I guess software plugin that you could you could deploy onto Kubernetes. Maybe, maybe. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I I was just totally surprised to how useless networking is in the Kubernetes world. Right. It's all just self contained and like they have their own DNS. Like they don't really need to care about anything outside of their little bubble. Ah, uh, kind of. I disagree in a way. I mean, it depends okay. who is building your cluster, right? Because if you are the one who is building your own cluster on-prem, um, then you do need to care about networking. And then, I don't know, you have to specify what kind of protocols will run there. Like, and you need to specify how it's called, like networking plugin. Roman, is it correct? Or like Calico and all of that stuff. I, I don't remember correctly because I didn't spend too much time on it. Yeah, and I, you mean, yeah. Yeah, and and then you also probably need some kind of like load balancer as well. And they do touch on a lot of networking concepts there. Like, you know, the PGP there is running for some of these, uh, of these plugins. So I don't know, it's like, it depends. Like, obviously if you just get the cluster from some cloud provider, then you don't care about any of that. You just get an environment where you spin up your workloads. But if you're the one spinning up your own, then you kind of have to deal with some of the networking pieces there. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong here. No, that's a that's a totally fair point, Dimitri. I think I think you're right. Um, 
Yeah, I. Yeah, no, no, you're right. So, so for us, we actually move completely away from physical data centers. I actually just decommissioned our last uh, kind of physical data center in the Seattle area in the Equinix uh, last year. Um, so all of us, we're just like completely moved to different cloud providers. I, I currently we probably deal with five of them and trying to make all of them work. Uh, so yeah, no, that's a fair point. Right. Um, do we have anything more to add on this topic of containerized labs and how to convert VMs to containers? Carl, I think Grumman? we're good. Okay. I think we, we, we covered it well, more or less. I think we could spend more time on the container lab and Kini later on in a subsequent hangouts. Yeah, I, I think it would be a good idea to invite someone from Kini project to touch upon that since we already had an episode dedicated on container labs before and then talk about these two tools in their goals and um, what's next i do believe that we're still kind of in the beginning of this containerized gnosis i mean there is a lot of interest but the i hope that you'll have much more gnosis much more projects from vendors uh, in such a form and then maybe we'll have like some additional developments on this front, which would be very interesting. But yeah, for now it's, I mean, even now it's very interesting how you can spin up this topology VCR lab very easily and making sure you deploy some config there and within minutes you have your topology up and running in the form and configured the way you want it to be. Um, which is a great way to use it in some kind of CI/CD. I actually see some of the people here in the audience who are maintaining some of the projects that we haven't talked about. One thing that I would like to point out, I have seen this, well, project that existed for quite a while, but it recently got an update. So I think the person who is working on it is Tony Tibot and that on Twitter, I think. So he has built this previously this Jinja template render website and uh, which you can access uh, if you go to textfsm.nornier.tech, uh, which I am doing as we speak. And he recently he added textfsm TTP and some other converters. And the idea there is that you can put your, let's say output from CLI, you can put your TextFSM template and then you see uh, what the result will be. So it's super easy and handy way to test your TextFSM or TTP templates. And I really liked it. I think it's a great idea. And there are some other converters. Um, I haven't used them, but these two particular ones, TextFSM and TTP, really like them and can definitely recommend. Once again, you can access this by going to textfsm.nornier.tech. I see John Capobianco wanting to share something with us. Hey, John. I... Hi, guys. Hey, today, hey was, uh, was, today was excellent, but I, I had a question since I have access to this amazing panel and I see Eric here as well. I'm just moving my project into Django um the framework and and may, maybe like approaching it from a model view controller approach and i was wondering if the panel or eric or anyone had any comments on you know django flask that whole framework approach i i've really fallen in love with it and it's really 
really accelerated my development and move maybe from infrastructure as code to almost infrastructure as software. And I just, I'd like to hear the panel's thoughts on something like this. Thank you. Carl, would you like to take that? And Eric, feel I... free to join if you have any thoughts and I will promote you back. Yeah, I don't have many thoughts. Um, I haven't played with Django uh, in a while. So I guess just in terms of like web framework choice, like pretty much everything I've done, not that I do a lot of webby type related things, but it's it's all Starletter fast API because I want async things. But I mean, if it, uh, I think Django, I mean, obviously Django is like a huge and hugely successful project. So that seems like a good place to be. So if it's working for you, then I think uh, that sounds pretty slick. Yeah, I think um, both Django and Flask were, well, still are one of the most popular uh, Python web frameworks. And merging, let's say, web framework backend plus any kind of network automation is a good idea. And we talked about it for for several episodes right now. And the reason being is that otherwise you have to make your users Download your Python script or whatever that script is, maybe some other language, maybe I know Perl or something, and then install the proper runtime environment and proper dependencies. And no one really wants to do that. Yeah, uh, there's a two letter fix for that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's called <clears throat> uh, no code, I think. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah, you can you can use single binary from Go, of course, um, if you fancy that. But um, anyway, people really don't want to deal with that stuff. They they want, especially if they're not familiar with programming, they just want to run your automation, consume it. And um, exposing that via some kind of web framework where it's, it's great. Because then you, you host it somewhere on your resource, people go to that portal, there are, I don't know, some forms, some buttons, some tables, stuff like that. And then by clicking on something, you get the some kind of network automation done. And they don't have to deal with all of that. Oh, let's install Python correct version on Windows and then something doesn't work there. Uh, so. This stuff is, is great. Now, in terms of actually selecting web framework, well, Django has much more like pre-built stuff. Like you get admin panel for free and you get a lot of kind of batteries included stuff for free. And in Flask, you have to think about many different pieces kind of on its own and find correct plugins and stuff. Though to be fair, in the recent years, FastABI seems to be the fastest growing Python web framework, not only Python web framework, web frameworks in general among all of the languages, it's one of the fastest growing uh, in general. In And it has amazing docs, it can run async and sync. So my personal preference is fast API. Now, before I actually stop talking, I would like to mention that one very important thing to remember whenever you are trying to pair network automation with web frameworks is you need to make sure that you are not running your automation inside of use directly unless it's async because otherwise you will block your workers so when you press a button right and then there is some kind of automation which takes 
some time to run. During that time, your web backend is blocked by that ex uh, execution unless it's async. So it needs to be either native in like a sync IO or you need to use some, some kind of uh, task queue uh, something like salary or maybe without salary, you need to some kind of queue to make sure that that part of doing something on network devices is done separately from actually the view uh, so that the view is not blocked. This is one of the like pitfalls whenever you touch, whenever you try to merge network automation with web frameworks. Um, Eric, do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, that's... that's uh, great. Uh, everything you said, um, I think so, John, like I, I love Django as well. So I started out with flask and if you look at like the recent polling, like, uh, the one sponsored by PyCharm and, uh, PSF, the most popular framework right now amongst like the surveys, uh, is actually flask. But if you look at, if you dig deeper into that survey results, so people who have actually used it in production and over a longer period of time, uh, I actually uh, geared towards, geared towards Django. So I think that's kind of near my own journey as well. I started out with Flask, but the problem is you get all these plugins. If you want to use forms, you got to get a plugin, like you know, additional modules. If you want to use authentication, there's another one and then so on and so forth. So by the end, you're maintaining like half a dozen to a dozen, these, uh, third-party packages yourself. So that kind of get into the world where, uh, I don't know if you use WordPress before, but like, you know, that is just a nightmare with WordPress. It's like, you're, you're ended up just having all these packages. Yeah. They're easy to install, but they're super hard to maintain because you don't know where to track down. And that's the most attractive part for me for Django was, you know, uh, there's one single source that makes sure everything works together. The upgrade path is easy. It's predictable on their release cycle and, um, they're vowed to be backward compatible. And, um, you saw, you already saw, I saw your tweets about like, uh, Django rest framework. So a lot of the maintainers are kind of, uh, interchangeable, uh, for Django rest framework. And then, um, so they all kind of work together. Um, and then, uh, also, uh, Wagtail. So the most most popular package out of Django was uh, Django REST framework, but second one was Wagtail. So if you have like content heavy, where you need to have people who are not tech savvy, need to input their articles, like whatever in like kind of review. And then you need somebody to be a moderator to approve those publishing and then schedule them to publish in a later date, which is my case for one of the sites that I maintain. So then that becomes like super easy to integrate and, and all of that. So yeah, no, I, I love it. And, uh, I don't deal with flask anymore. <laughs> I migrate I, my size to Django. I really appreciate the feedback and I, I, everything Dimitri said has been my experience with it. Um, and it's, what I love is it, it gives you the front, like if we think of a, a, a traditional three tier app. What I found and pretty quickly was that Django has that database and it comes with SQL Lite. You could swap that out for whatever you want. The programming, the application layer, and then the, the presentation layer. And then as you dig deeper, like presentation is really, they call them views. It's a look into your database with different filters applied. So think of it as very complicated, complex SQL statements. 
abstracted by simple Python dot filter, right? So you don't have to worry about select this and outer joins and all this SQL. I don't know. I, I'm in love with it. I, and I'm really just, I feel like I'm, I'm onto something pretty neat here where, like you said, Dimitri, you want to abstract that automation. I have, let's say, PyETS jobs that do some pretty neat things. Um, but like you said, they have to spin up a virtual environment and have the right version of this and do that. Or I have to containerize it to your earlier discussion. Well, now they, they log into slash get latest and click the big giant button on the screen and it runs all the automation, puts it in the database and then presents it as a data tables.net, a, you know, living sortable, searchable HTML page. Um, really can't say enough about it. So thanks for the discussion today. And, and I don't want to take up too much time. I just, I really wanted to, to hear, you know, your feedback on Django. I didn't want to bet on another dead horse and spend four years on Django like I did on Ansible, only to find out it's the wrong tool, right? Whatever web framework works for you is fine. Like Flask, Flask, Django, Fast API, it's all good choices. I do think both me and Carl gravitate towards Fast API, but I would say it's personal preference. Right. Um, thank you for your question, John. Uh, I see Nijat is joining. Hello, Nijat. Could you? Uh, it's nice to see you back. Hello, Dimitri. Hi. Nice to see you guys. Hear you as well. Uh, I, I, well, I will not take much of your time with my long multiple questions this time, but I wanted to comment for uh, about Flask, Django, or web app development as the web world is moving towards uh, web apps as, as well as network automation. But <laughs> there is a little bit um, uh, danger <laughs> that I want to uh, raise here is that as a traditional network engineer, I, uh, I when I started to, you know, uh, develop small scripts, um, you start to think about how you're 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 going to distribute it and then you end up with uh, you know with the idea of uh web right and then um, i started to uh, get accounted with flask because it's as simple enough to do what i want to do and then you fall in love and you end up being a front-end front -end developer not a network engineer anymore yeah um that's the beauty of it and the actual question I, I wanted to ask is actually it might be connected to web apps, uh, I don't know, uh, automation servers. Um, it is about the architecture of the automation environment in the production. Recently, I had a problem or a challenge uh, with the security firewall guys not allowing me to connect to. Um, uh, my automation server to a to a GitLab that we are using, not allowing me to do a remote development, and I had a lot of problems with the architect architecture of the uh, automation system that I wanted to build yeah, uh, to have a one nick towards the users that they are going to reach its web interface and another nick that will. Uh, that it will have a connection to devices that I want to connect to, uh, connect to uh, through SSH or SNMP, etc. What do you think about that? What, uh, how do you uh, solve such kind of uh, challenges? So to to recap that to make sure we're all on the same page. So basically, you need 
access for your users to get to the web app, but you also that that same instance, whatever it is, also needs to get to stuff that security people want to put a firewall yeah. between or something. Basically, yeah, okay. Yeah, as as well as providing, um, uh, you know, having uh, tools tools that you usually use, for instance, Git, GitLab, or whatever GitHub uh, that you're using for CI/CD, etc., for this connected to the server. So all this ecosystem yeah. connected to each other. But the security guys, you know, in a big, big, big ecosystem doesn't allow it. They cut yeah. from from here and there, so you end up crippled. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think, well, I guess there's, uh, I'll take a stab at this. <laughs> I guess there's a couple options. Um, Self-hosted runners, whether whether it's you know GitHub Actions or GitLab or whatever, that could be an option, or you know using something that you run internally, like if you just host GitLab yourself, if that's you know I guess that could be an option, although maybe heavy-handed. I, I guess those are probably reasonable options. I think for a lot of stuff in my experience, having Bastion hosts and and just proxy jumping through things. Uh, has worked for for a lot of things and you know so that could probably be a component of it certainly not all of it i don't think and then i think the the last thought i had and then i'll stop talking and this is maybe like a pet peeve of mine or or a a thing i'm i don't know overly obsessed with for some reason i never like to have everything like all of my automation or all of my whatever you want to call it running on kind of like a the controller if you will or like the the kind of you know god box kind of thing so i like to like have distributed workers, you know, a worker per instance or a worker per site or a worker per region or whatever, you know, makes sense in your environment. So in that case, if there's a way that this controller can just put a message into a queue like SNS or RabbitMQ or ZeroMQ or whatever, um, you know, maybe that's a way to kind of, uh, you know, some combination of these things might be a way to kind of work around security or, or get to a place where they're, you know, happy. I mean, at some, but at some point, like they're also going to have to, deal <laughs> like at some point like if, if they want if you want to be able to do all the things like there needs to be access that, that that's kind of the end of the day and you know doing that responsible is one thing but um, just blocking it because it can't be done is seems you know like a, obviously a, like a layer eight problem but that seems like a difficult problem yeah so i think i think i plus one on what carl said it's like they, they have to get over it so at microsoft we used to have you know just proxies and uh, like particular domains that have lockdown access to these devices and you lock the access to those domains. Um, and then from those domains, you actually have to jump through proxies to get to the devices. And then, uh, and then later on, they actually give you dual boot laptops so that when you need to like have these premium VIP access, you have to boot into a se separate image with like fingerprints and all of that in order to get that. And then those special laptops are issued for people who have gone through security checks and all that. So regardless of how many hoops they, they make you jump, uh, they have to get over it and then they have to have allow access somehow, uh, To in my opinion, and just wanna share that. That was you know a lot of hoops to jump through, but they did allow that some uh, at one, one way or the other. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, I would like to also support what Carl said. I had exactly the same thoughts regarding if you if you need any kind of CI CD, you can use self-hosted runners and that has been running well for my use cases. So both GitLab runner, I didn't use GitHub Action self-hosted runner yet. We also have Jenkins in some places um, 
which we can self-host uh, the runners there too. So that is nice option. And I also like this idea of distributed workers. And uh, actually for one of the project that works that I'm doing, uh, we have a bunch of data centers in DMZ where we have some of the lab gear and they are all separate DMZs and the architecture that I came up with was hosting a lot of stuff actually in the cloud and then building VPN to the cloud. But the workers for, let's say, to execute some tasks on specific devices will be per data center. And then the central controller, well, the web page where users can go even via internet, that will push some kind of job to the queue, which will be picked up by the appropriate worker in the appropriate data center. And yeah, that is usually kind of a nice way to work around that. You just have to find a good place to put your queue and it can be cloud hosted. It can be like SQS, it can be self-hosted like a RabbitMQ somewhere. Azure, Azure. DevOps has a really nice idea of agents where it won't not only will it build and deploy your Docker containers, but you can selectively pick where these workers run on these agents where you could have, you know, if you need to run a container in a secure zone, it kind of proxies in and runs that workload on the agent. And you have agent pools and it's it's automatically round robin if you want. It's pretty nice, the Azure DevOps CI C D for this idea of running secure containers through proxies and things like that. At some point, you will definitely have to fight with those guys and prove that the system you build is secure. And I think it's a, it's a reasonable fight to fight, I think. Reasonable battle to take on, on you. You know, I have seen a number of instances where security was an afterthought and it didn't work out great. There were some really serious issues, it just, it, there needs to be some kind of structured approach. So understanding what are the possible ways to architect what you're trying to do, how you can kind of like separate, maybe make sure that one single box doesn't do everything and somehow distribute responsibilities that, okay, this one thing is serving users and it's a web portal. This other thing is performing some, some kind of tasks. Bastion or jump hosts uh, seems like good idea too here or, or queues. But once you have the architecture in place, I do believe that there should be some kind of formal process with security teams that you can go through so that they can assess how secure your architecture is um, and introduce and suggest some changes if they feel like uh, they need to be done, but also at the same time provide some kind of assistance because just, you know, oh, we need access to here and the answer is no. This is like not really a productive way to do work and to achieve some positive business outcomes. So there definitely should be collaboration, but there also like needs to be, you, you need to think about it. You need to propose some kind of architecture. You need to think about, okay, what are the possible ways this can be done and also work with them on, okay, this is a problem I'm trying to solve. What are my options? How they can help you to make sure that this task can be achieved. So this would be my thoughts on this. Does anyone have anything to add? 
so I, I just want to add one last chat that I forgot to mention in regards to Django, if you don't mind uh, diverge a little bit. So the only issue that, which is a big problem of me and I'm trying to find solutions for it with Django is that um, eventually the users will want like a very slick front end, like they want something that's they're accustomed to, like looking at Facebook and um, uh, Instagram and all these web front ends. And those are actually built on React and Vue, but there's not a very good workflow for React and Vue because what they end up with is, and what people usually do is just totally make just Django the back end and they, don't, they disregard all the templating and they just use Django REST framework. And the front end is completely built with like routers and all of that templates in uh, in Vue or React. Um, but if you want to combine the two and have, you know, like Webpack for package management and all the total total workflow for those front ends, then you become a problem. The best solution I've found so far is uh, SAS Pegasus. And I've, I think I've sent you that link before, John, um, on where he has device. It's not perfect, but at least there's like kind of this light at the end of the tunnel. So it's not all like unicorns and rainbows for Django. It's I, I constantly fight various kind of battles uh with that. So anyways, off my soapbox. And thanks again for uh for this session. I I, I really enjoyed it. Well I appreciate the the heads up. I uh it's funny I'm I'm at that threshold of okay now I need a front end which you know JavaScript package do I pick? So I probably appreciate that Eric. Thank you. And um Dimitri and Carl and everybody thanks again. This is this was really enlightening the, the discussion today about containers and the new approach. So thank you. Thank you so yeah, much for, for joining. joining. All right. Uh, Carl, what are your final wisdom for today? Oh, no. Uh, uh, testing. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I, no. I, I am not accepting yeah, yeah. this. All right, all right. Um, I guess thinking about the the stuff we were just talking about, like something's got to give somewhere. So teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> you know, like uh, there, at some point we've got to just kind of collaborate and figure out how to do stuff in a way that is a good compromise is when everybody is unhappy with the compromise. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> <laughs> no, or you wait for the first outage and you're like, oh, you know, because you weren't allowed me to do that. And, you know, then that's why things are all effed up. Totally. It's got, something's got to give. That's That's all I know. And my wisdom for today is security should not be an afterthought. It really needs to be something to think about even before you start building your solution. And that will help you avoid being on the front page of some news. Anyway, uh, this has been another episode of Network Automation Hangout. Audio discussion about network automation with the community we are recording bi-weekly on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Central European time, 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Join us to talk about network automation. Thank you so much, and until the next time, goodbye.